We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. How would you like a free case of craft beer? Well, as a listener to our show, we'd like to thank you for listening. And with the help of our friends at Beer52.com, we can do just that. Just go to Beer52.com forward slash vision. That's Beer52.com forward slash vision to claim a free case. Beer 52 is the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. They search out incredible and exclusive small batch craft beers from the world's greatest breweries and bring them back for their members. There is a whole world of craft beer out there. You don't have to drink the same thing over and over again. You don't have to order beer not knowing what you like. Just get on board with discovering great craft beer with Beer52.com. Listeners who sign up now will get to discover fantastic beers from the winners of the Raise the Bar competition. Beer 52 search for the UK's best new small brewers in partnership with London Craft Beer Festival. Enjoy the likes of Unity's 7% Export Stout, Boxcar's Belgian IPA, and West by Three's Mothership with Passion Fruit. As a listener to our show, you can try your first case for free. Just pay £2.95 postage. That's it. Eight incredible craft beers delivered to you, Ferment Magazine, and a snack. There's no minimum commitment. You can just take the free case, try the beer, see what you think. If it's not for you, you can pause, cancel any time. Beer 52 has a five-star rating on Trustpilot, so it's easy to see that their members love the service. Do it now. Try some craft beer. Just visit beer52.com. That's www.beer52.com forward slash vision. And claim your free case today. Try it. Beer52.com. It is the way to learn more about great beers around the world. Offer valid in the UK only. What a On a 
beautiful day of football. You have to be able to see the positives. You have to be able to celebrate when things go your way. And you have to be able to be upbeat about a performance that leaves you feeling great about your season. That's exactly what we're going to do because this is the Brighton and Hove Albion post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Albion. I'm kidding. Obviously, this is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. But wouldn't it be great just this once if it was the Brighton and Hove Albion post-match podcast? Because, because we could revel in the Jose experience, the season three Jose experience, the implosion, the inevitable implosion, and long may it continue. I hope he is appointed manager for life. Uh, he is suddenly one of the best things about the Premier League, and who would have guessed? But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Chelsea three, Arsenal two. Uh, a lot to like about it in bits, but overall, it's another loss. It's two losses to start the season, and so uh, not ideal. We are going to cover that with Tim. You can find him on Twitter, at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello there, indeed. We're going to cover it with Paul. He's on Twitter, at Posing in My Pants. Hello, Pause. Woohoo! And Clive is here, of course. He's on Twitter, at Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Scott's down the line with the statistics you need to understand what actually happened in the match, besides all of our waffling. A little bit of housekeeping. First, I want to give a shout out to Brendan and his students at Regents Park School in Australia. Uh, They listen to the podcast as a group. They are great supporters of the pod. Uh, Brendan sent us a really nice note about it, and we really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. We have a winner, not the club, but a listener, uh, Taylor Crabb. Taylor Crabb did win the Arsenal shirt. He is going to receive the shirt of his choosing. Uh, Home, away, third kit, name of player. We'll do another one of these uh, throughout the season. So if you didn't win which obviously, unless your name's Taylor Crabb, you didn't win. <laughs> but uh, we'll do more of those. And Taylor uh, has received an email, and hopefully we'll get back to us right away. And last but not least, uh, Matteo Ganduzzi, the legend continues to grow right now on the Patreon side of things. There's a two-hour in-the-spotlight episode just about Matteo Ganduzzi. And the awesome thing about it is, despite recording it last week, nothing we said looked stupid in the wake of the performance against Chelsea. So that's a win for us. It's evergreen content now, and you can listen to it there just by signing up on our Patreon, and we love you, whether you do or you don't. So let's dive in. Let's start with the lineup. Tim, one of the things that is going to be different about a different coach is the way they pick the team and not doing things that we expected the last coach to do, and we're learning that maybe our predictive powers are not what they were uh, in seasons past. And so Ganduzi keeps his place, but so does Shaka. There's no room for Torreira, despite the time for Torreira post by the Arsenal uh, official <laughs> account on Twitter. Um, no room for Ramsey in the starting lineup either, although Ozil restored to the number 10. And Lacazette, nope, he's left on the bench as well. How surprised were you with the lineup? And maybe even a, a word on the fact that there was no center back on the bench as well. Yeah, I was I was quite surprised by elements of it. I, I fully expected Lacazette to come in, um, for example. I wasn't too surprised that he didn't want to put Ramsey and Ozil in the same team, but I thought Ozil might be the full guy on this occasion. Uh, whether that's down to us still managing Ramsey's calf injury, I don't know. Um, or maybe that's just a convenient way to sell it to him um, while you sit him on the bench. Um and yeah, I, so I fully expected to see Lacazette up front. I thought Mkhitaryan might keep his place on that right-hand side. Pleasantly surprised to see Iwobi. I think Iwobi always plays well in this fixture, um, both home and away, actually. And I'd be interested to know, not, I'm sure we'll never find out for sure, but I'd be interested to know how much, um, you know, Emery looked at those performances against Chelsea over the last couple of years and looked at Iwobi's contribution to them, both from an attacking and a defensive sense in terms of kind of pressing from the front. And he's got that, he's got, one of the things Iwobi's really got going for him, I think, is that kind of, 
he's got that phys- he's got the physical chops basically um to go toe to toe with chelsea which we haven't always had players that can do that but particularly in that midfield he can wriggle away from people um and i actually i actually thought his position really suited him in that kind of half space where he wasn't as under pressure to make you know big contributions he wasn't playing in central midfield so it wasn't on him to pick out the pass all the time he you know he wasn't playing as a number 10 so he he was just there just to pick up those little spaces um that are that are hard to pick up and and he had a really good game and i thought that was a, a really justified selection but yeah, I, I fully expected Torreira uh, to be in there. I, I thought I wasn't hugely surprised to see Genduzi, but I, th- I thought Xhaka might lose his place. But, you know, this is what we said on the last pod, isn't it? We've got, up until this point, we've had literally no data in terms of Emery's starting lineups. And so, you know, predicting Saturday's starting lineup, for example, will be uh, very, very difficult because we're, we're still getting a bit of a feel for this manager. But one of the things, I suppose, looking back, when you look at pre-season, there was very little consistency um, in lineup. And it looked like, at the time, I, I thought, you know, he's, he's obviously just having a good look at everybody. And we got to that last friendly against Lazio and I was looking at it and I was thinking, right, now we're probably going to see, you know, the team that plays against Man City. But he actually picked almost a reserve team um, for that one. He, you know, he gave everyone uh, not quite equal minutes, but there didn't seem to be a sense that, right, this is the team I'm going to be working with. And that that's probably because he hasn't worked that out yet. Yeah. And this might this might be a continuation of that. He's just trying to give everyone a little bit of a chance, um, perhaps. And we've seen with his substitutions as well, there's no sentiment there. You know, Ozil's getting hooked early on, Ramsey's getting hooked, Jacques is getting hooked. Um, you know, and, and that's that's a good thing. That's quite refreshing. You know but... who's not getting hooked? Genduzi, Mateo Genduzi, baby. <laughs> <laughs> because basically, because that's the only player he's. Well, we we think that he's actually bought into the squad himself, or rather, had a big say about him coming in. So, it's it's quite interesting at the moment because the lineups are one of the few things. Because we've had all this change, but we're still waiting for something to actually change on the pitch because that's going to take a little while. So. We're kind of sitting here twiddling our thumbs that a lot of the new signings, apart from Genduzi, have, haven't really played. And that's why he's been such a topic of discussion, because it's something identifiable that's changed. So all the while we're kind of, yes, we've got all the change. Uh, it's not quite happened yet, though, has it? And so we're in this weird limbo. And even though we've lost two games... You know, no one can. If if Arsenal had still been manager, then you know everyone knew the drill. Everyone would just go mad for a week and and you know throw their rotten tomatoes at Arsenal. But we can't really do that at the moment either. So actually, the the starting lineup is one of those things. It's almost like a topic of conversation while we wait for all this brilliant change on the pitch. Yeah, well, we got to have something to fill this podcast with. So <laughs> thank God for that. Yeah, I mean, look, if if your version of change is a team that can attack pretty effectively, but is a calamity at the back like then you weren't watching arsenal the last few seasons it still it still looks very familiar in a lot of ways uh, clive i want to give you a chance first of all to just rejoice in ramsey being benched because obviously i'm sure that was the high point of your day and and giving your agenda towards the player but putting it to one side because um, i do want to get into the patterns of play and the things that went wrong for us in that in that first 20 minutes or so but as far as the lineup goes i mean for you what was the part of it that 
that surprised you the most? Was it was it Ramsey being dropped? Was it Shaka maintaining his his partnership with Ganduzi or Ganduzi keeping his place? What what stood out for you as the sort of really shocking aspects of the lineup? Uh, I suppose what stood out for me is that the manager doesn't care. He has no favorites at the moment. Uh, uh, other than like Ganduzi, obviously. Well, we we don't know that, right? <laughs> so um, so but he's just looking and picking people based on their performance and what he wants to see. And I think that's brilliant because we all know the previous favourites. We all know the previous players that would never be substituted. And if we know it, all the players in the dressing room know it. And so what you end up having, you end up with this big loaded squad, but half of them know they're not going to play or know that if they do play, they won't be playing next week. And so you lose motivation, you lose that togetherness. And and what he's trying to do is bring that togetherness back. So from a team selection perspective, I'm not. I was pleased that he won't be started. I must admit, I I, th- I I think he's made a physical step forward over the summer. I don't know how, but he's made a step forward. I thought he showed a wonderful presence on the pitch, so that that was good to see. Uh, but when you know, a lot of people were saying, you know, when we get a new manager comes in, we're going to see a massive uptick from these players. They're going to be coached. They're going to be different. You'll see this player, you'll see this player, they're going to be so much better. And I've always doubted that. You know me earlier, I've always said, let's blow this thing up. And the reason why, when I analyse the players and their ceilings, I see you can always get a level of improvement with a, co- a coherent system. But I think what we're seeing on occasion and why we look patchy is the limits of some of those players and what they do when they feel uncomfortable. And I think you saw a lot of that in our defending in that first 20 minutes. What you saw of a, a set, if you look at our defenders, all four of them, right? What are they? So there's lots of good analysis out there on what happened on those goals in that first 20 minutes. But no one's really said why. Why is this happening? Right? So and it comes down to balance of defenders, balance of players. Yeah. All four of those players are, are front foot defenders, right? They all want to go and get it. They want to go and touch someone, they want to go and feel someone. They want to nick it, they want to steal it. None of them want to run back towards their goal. And, and so they put themselves into areas where they are basically comfortable. But from a back line, if you've got four of them doing that together, no <laughs> one taking chance to drop in. Basically, we're going to we're going to suffer, and that, and that's what happened. I think he needs to balance the defenders, and you put that same team out there with Lauren Koscielny in that team, who always is aware of the back foot, always is aware of the spacing behind, would always have his shoulders not square but to one side, so he can set off on his run much quicker rather than turning like a like a QE two like Mustafi and Socrates did, who don't even want to get into a running race with somebody in open space where the cameras can see how bad they are. What they do is they run up behind someone like cowards and no one can blame them when they're not there. And this is the sort of thing that the manager is finding out. He's finding out who's with him. He's finding out who people's their limits. And he's finding out who the cowards are. And he's finding out who's brave enough to get on the ball, put themselves into errors, which are going to benefit the team and not themselves. And yeah. I, for one, am massively excited by what he's trying to achieve. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be encouraged about there. I mean, I, I think one of the things that worried me, though, is that th- this is two parts that have to go together. If you're going to play a high line and press up the pitch, you have to have some intensity about the way you press the ball because any Premier League midfielder, anyone, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're talking about, you know, Jorginho or you're talking about someone at, you know, at Bournemouth, they can pick out a runner in behind if 
if you give them space and you're playing a high line. And it's kind of the Andre Villas-Boas experiment when they were at, at when he was at Spurs. They just got killed with that. So, Paul, one of the things that was worrying me, and I, I was taking you know little bits of notes as the game was going on, and uh, multiple times, you know, I said giving them too much space in midfield with a high line. And sure enough, really, both goals come from that kind of play. Although with the first goal, a little bit different because Bellerin tries to pinch up and, and press the ball and Mkhitaryan's not awake to the danger. But for you, was the biggest concern with the way we approached the game off the ball just the fact that we were using a high line and not getting enough pressure on players like Jorginho on the ball? Yeah, I mean, it's two sides of the same coin in terms of the pressure in midfield, the the pressing up front, and when it's out of sync, it you look calamitous. Uh, and we saw really for the first 30 minutes of the game that we didn't get that coordinated at all between uh, our back line, between the midfield and between our pressing. I mean, you know, six, seven times uh, they got a ball over the top or through the channels that put us in all sorts of trouble. And fortunately, about half of them, they were offside on. But you could see the trouble we were in, and we'll talk about the second half uh, at at some point. But yeah, in the second on, yeah. half, yeah, in the second half, it was Chelsea who had the high line. We didn't seem to manage to punish that nearly as well as they punished ours. So we basically had thirty minutes in the first half where we, in effect, had Mustafi and Socrates on the halfway line. Uh, to be honest, I don't know how they're ever going to survive that. I mean, if I'm Murata, I'll be rubbing my hands all day. You're waiting for that Fabregas-type ball over the pit, uh, over the top. I know. Does he, it even he have to be playing. that good a ball? You know what? That's the scary thing. Yeah, is with that exactly. much space in behind, I, I almost feel like you could just punt it and have a shot. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, if we're going to be doing this all year long, I mean, uh, I don't feel <laughs> I wouldn't quite express it quite as, as Clive did. Um, but I'm not super excited to watch this for 38 games. I know, fortunately, uh, games play out differently, but seeing Mustafi and Socrates try and cover a ball over the top every time we don't get sufficient pressure or pressing. Uh, And in this game, we had this interesting man-to-man thing we were doing in the middle of midfield. We had... um, we were covering covering Barkley and uh, Kante with uh, Chaka and uh, Genduzi man to man for the first half, and they were getting togged all over the place. Those are two highly mobile players, so the gaps between our two our screen. I mean, holy fuck, right? You you got Mustafi's already shitting himself about the ball over the top and next thing his his two screening midfielders are are going like crossing each other like the red arrows and uh, we it was kind of calamitous and you had our two full backs uh, Bellerin and and Nacho nipping into midfield to try and cut things off um, and we were just totally out of sync for 30 minutes we were looked like we were going to get beaten 7-0 so. It's funny too because you could you could see the warning signs, and when they got the goal, and in fact both goals were really from from moves that we'd had warnings of. The irony is that you you know you live by the sword and die by it, right? Because the the when Bellerin presses up and doesn't get there in time, and Mkhitaryan's not alive to the danger, and they get their first goal from that from that move. 
Something similar happens just a little bit later in the half where Nacho pinches up like that, but he does get the ball. He gives it to Awobi. Yep. Awobi pulls it back to Mkhitaryan, and that's our first goal. So, you know, we this is the problem with growing pains, right? When we get really yeah. good at it, hopefully we'll understand how not to get punished by it. But right now, it's 50-50. Whether, you know, we saw it against Man City, too, where some of the times we got it right, we won the ball, and we actually created really interesting opportunities. When we're not getting the ball right now, we're being punished too harshly. And so I think for this system to work, we have to find a way to be able to take that risk, but not having the downside risk so badly punished, so excessively punished, if that makes sense. Because there's something about the formation and the setup and the way we're doing it right now, where if we're not getting to the ball, it's just open season. And that feels too dangerous, too, uh, like the balance isn't there. And so Tim... You know, when when it comes to the second goal in particular, this is one thing that I think we have to analyze. Sometimes it's system and training and practice, and sometimes it's players. Is there any excuse for the position Socrates and Mustafi take up there? I mean, you can't play a guy offside in his own half. Shouldn't they be a couple (laughs) yards further back, ready to track and block off Murata's run? I mean, to me, that's where I look at the center backs and say, well, you just can't play this game with this system because these guys aren't good enough. Yeah, yeah, I think particularly uh, Mustafi kind of making really no attempt to get round the back and cover and just not smelling that danger. Um, and I think you're quite right. I think in terms of our individuals in defence, that's 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 one of the problems we've got, right? Um, we spoke about this in pre-season. The style we're going to try and play, it will expose our defence on occasion. Hopefully, it'll expose them less and less as we get better at this, but... They will still be exposed, and when you've got an exposed defence, you you need really good defenders. That's why Liverpool paid seventy million for Virgil Van Dijk. That's why Wenger bent over backwards to bring in Sol Campbell, because you know he knew that he was going to have an exposed defence, and so he needed elite level defenders to deal with it. And we certainly don't have that. And Mustafi, it's not just the inability to smell danger. Murata does nothing special to get past him whatsoever. I mean, on one hand, Mustafi does actually show a, a good turn of pace to catch up with Murata. He he actually, because um, Murata has got ridiculously got a bit of a head start. Um, but Mustafi does well enough to catch him up. But then he gets so tight to him instead of just like dropping off another half yard and trying to shepherd him or trying to face him up, he, he just goes shoulder to shoulder with him and he just gets turned so easily. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have an awful lot of confidence that Mustafi's going to gonna suddenly stop doing that. I mean, he's 26 and it was quite interesting, wasn't it, when he came out with those comments last week that sounded a bit pointed um, about, you know... Emery's um, more detail-oriented, more focused on the details, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's difficult to improve when no one's telling you what you're doing wrong. And I have I, I, the best tweet I saw about that was um, a friend of mine, Matt Burnham, just tweeted, I've got sympathy with Mustafi um, when he says that Wenger didn't really point out his mistakes, but he could have just watched Match of the Day, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> and, and to be fair, I've got sympathy for, for Mustafi because if Arsene Wenger wanted to point out his mistakes, he wouldn't have time to prepare anybody else for the next match. So, yeah. you know, it's yeah, probably exactly. got to be time management. Exactly. And and I think one of the things that um, when you watch Adrian Clark's analysis, he kind of he doesn't really make 
this connection explicitly, but one of the best things about us going forward was that we had Mkhitaryan and Awobi very in field, and that allowed the kind of particularly the fullbacks to get back um, for the cutbacks, and and that's a way that Emery likes to play, which worked brilliantly for us in an attacking sense, but in a defensive sense, it just leaves our fullbacks so exposed, and it, uh, maybe he expects the midfielders um, to kind of fill in there and do that. Um, but that that's all going to take some time. But I I agree with you. I th- I think um, I think this defence can get better um, with better organisation and coaching and blah blah blah. But ultimately, I think that when we're talking about it, it's going to take a few transfer windows to sort this team out. I think that's the area of the pitch we're looking at, isn't it? It's kind of stunning that we didn't bring in one more centre back this summer and and what this what the central defense is missing is someone to be the leader because neither of those guys yeah. look like they're prepared to be the leader and maybe Socrates will grow into that he's still new there but it's it's hard to see how that pairing is going to get us by this season and poor Callum Chambers based on his first couple appearances for Fulham doesn't look like he's going to come back to Arsenal and be the answer anytime soon um I want to get to some of the good stuff that happened that half Mkhitaryan I think is going to be a tricky player for us as supporters because you know I, I was taking notes as this game goes along and like Five of my first ten notes are misplaced ball by Mkhitaryan, Mkhitaryan liability defensively for their opening goal, Mkhitaryan stunning miss, Mkhitaryan giveaway, and then it's Mkhitaryan goal, Mkhitaryan assist. So it's like <laughs> that that kind of player. I mean, he had the ultimate zero performance followed by a ten performance, and you know he's he's got to knock off some of the downside of that. But I think he's just a little bit of a sloppy player all around. Um, I thought Awobi on the other side had a really, really good game and really encouraging and uh, should be pointed out, the player that I picked to be the breakout player of the season in our season preview. So that's certainly worth a mention. Clive, let's get to some of the things that started to go right for us, though. And we did start to press effectively and and cause them problems in wide spaces. And one thing I loved is that we were doing pullbacks. We really seem to understand now when we get into those dangerous wide positions what the right ball is, that pullback to the penalty spot. And uh, Genduzzi plays an absolutely scintillating through ball, line-breaking through ball right to Bellerin in behind the back four, who pulls it back to Aubameyang on the spot. Talk me through your reaction to that move and the Aubameyang miss. <clears throat> My reaction is not um, not for the podcast because um, we have to get some abusive language um, on it. But I tell <laughs> well, we you do now, have the explicit um, tag, so fire away. <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh, it was it was a surprise, wasn't it? I mean, I think um, Chelsea's two fullbacks are, are, are not really fullbacks. Aspilicueta is a, a right sided centre half in the three and been absolutely fantastic at doing it. David Luiz is a central defender in a in a in a three. Alonso is the wing back. And so for me, you know, it was always going to be in those spaces that we had to attack them. We had to get them running backwards. And on the left-hand side, it was literally Alonso versus Bellerin. They they both defend by running away, running forward to make the other one defend. You see what I mean? Rather than engage. Yeah. They're not very good at engaging. They're not very good at decision-making under pressure when the ball's buzzing around their spot. But the moment their team gets the ball, they're off to the races. And they... They defend by pushing you back and making you play their game. And Bellerin had a great few minutes and he just rinsed Alonso for 10 minutes or so with the help of Mikatarian. And we just got in that side time and time again. Again, Asper Lequeta, he's like a, a dual expert. He's good in the air, he's sharp in the challenge. But he didn't have to run over his shoulder too often, not time time again. So Wobi is quite strong. He held him off. He drove him inside, little one twos, and he made him think. Like, and it 
And it was quite interesting. I had a quick chat to him before the podcast started. I said, what was it like? And he said, it was electric when we were playing well. And I can imagine what that was like, you know, because there's fans are desperate to see some positivity and some something new, something fresh. But what happened was we just got in charge, but actually we lacked a bit of efficiency in front of the goal, which is yeah. a real shame well, because that should have been four goals up you know, in the first half. Yeah, I mean, we we created four big chances in the first half, one of which was taken. We created four big chances against the top six in total last season. So there is something, yeah. when you see your team away at a big side, putting them on the rack and creating big chances, it's really exciting. So I, I want to get your take on one thing about Aubameyang here, though, Clive, um, and that is just, you know, I am always torn when it comes to a striker getting into great goal-scoring positions but not scoring because, you know, we are told that the job of a a great goal scorer is to get into those goal-scoring positions and eventually the goals will come. And so we should be encouraged that he found himself in those positions to have big chances. But, of course, not, you know, not converting those is how you wind up dropping points away at a big side. So do you come away from that miss and then, of course, the other one he had in close range as encouraging an improvement from his last performance and a sign that he's it's coming, or are you more discouraged yeah. by the misses? No, I don't worry about him. He'll get his goals. He seems to really care about it as well. I think if he'd have scored the first one, he'd have scored the second one. I mean, I felt the second one just lacked a bit of timing and confidence and sort of hit his standing leg. I also had a hit. His, you know, when something hits his standing leg, that's like an, an embarrassment as a footballer. And I also had one against Man City again. Uh, as I had a little acute one near post that didn't go quite in or didn't quite go for the cross the face. Against the top six, we need to be super efficient in their box to change things because we haven't got the the strength in wide areas to defend consistently. We're not intense enough in the centre of the pitch to put pressure on the ball consistently yet. And so we, we're like a boxer with his chin hanging out at the moment. Are you going to chin me or am I going to chin you? And it feels like that. Against top six, right? But again, there's another season out there. Right? Against the rest of the league, I think we might be pleasantly surprised because we've upped our work rate, we've upped our our running kilometres. I think we lacked that last year, and I think if you match these lower teams for effort, I think um, we can do better. Abamyang, you know my views earlier. You know I'm I'm a Lacazette fan for structure. While we're learning, a lot of the things we're talking about. I think Lacazette can offer us that intensity and that pressure on defensively. I think he's a very good defender, underrated. And I think it just takes the emotional pressure of Aubameyang to have to be our structure, have to be in a certain place on the pitch to allow us to build. And I think emotionally, he's much better when he's free to do damage as he so feels. Mm -hmm. I don't worry about him. It's a mischance. It just... It must have hit something. I don't know what happened. It, he seemed to approach it correctly. He just skied it. Right? Yeah. I, I think it affects him on the second one. Yeah, and I, I think you obviously, look, we're going to have some corners of the fan base that get on his back right away for it, and that's that comes with being at a big club with big expect, expectations. But I think we have to be patient, and I realize some of this can look uh, a little interesting coming from me, who you know was notorious for getting down on Olivier Giroud a little bit. But truthfully, that was more a style thing. Uh, not that we need to go over that again. But it is a case of you look at the positions he got into, and he did everything you want from your center forward except put it in the back of the net. Now, if he was some 22-year-old, I'd say, well, that's kind of his job. He has to do that. But Aubameyang has a long track record of scoring those chances. I mean, he had 31 league goals for Dortmund the season before he joined us. So... I think 
patience is warranted in this instance. Paul, the the player who I think we have to feel really good about on the whole based on this performance is Alex Awobi. And, you know, he, he gets sort of an assist. I mean, he's a little lucky that the ball finds its way to Mkhitaryan, and Mkhitaryan may be a little lucky to squeeze that past Kepa. But what really impressed me in that moment is the way he shielded the ball and protected it and stayed strong on the ball till he was able to get it to Mkhitaryan. And then he popped up in the box in a good position two occasions, one to finish, one he didn't finish. The one he scored was a big chance. So, you know, overall, his strength on the ball, the way he's using his physicality now, the way he's drifting in interior positions from those wide positions and really seems to understand his role, he definitely looked in this game like it was starting to come together for him and like he had a lot more confidence behind the way he was playing. Was he the player that for you maybe stood out as the most impressive considering, you know, maybe where he's been coming from in his Arsenal career? Um, that's a tough one, but yeah, I mean, he's right up there. Um, kind of in, in the Elliot vein of claiming a little, uh, credit for myself. I mean, I do think he's going to get a lot of minutes. <laughs> Is that how we're doing it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you, do Why you want to, do you want to brag again that you pick Ganduzi to start the city game or are we passed that already? <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I've never really passed anything that went right for me. I got so much wrong. You got to cover your ass. Yeah. No, I, I think Iwobi's going to get a lot of minutes. Uh, cause, uh, he's young, you need legs. And, um, I think, I don't think we're anywhere near fit enough yet as a team. And I think we'll talk about the second half. I think tiredness definitely came into it, but you know, we were, we were, uh, pegged back for a long time by Chelsea in this game. Um, they put in a lot of work mileage wise in the first half so we must have put in even more chasing them around the field and a guy like a um like he, he's not great running ni- 90 minutes at the moment but that first 60 minutes uh he he really had chelsea back on their heels and if they were down one end and back the other then that's absolutely perfect for a it just means they're a little looser He's got a little more space to run into. And I think he really earned his assist because, you know, that he had his guy backpedaling. That's why you got that deflection. His energy, his running, his aggressiveness at running into the box. These things are going to pay off all season in a way that I don't think they have in previous seasons because we're going to have more transitions. We're going to the work rate and the speed at which we arrive in the penalty box means they're going to be scrambling. And hopefully what it means is the work we put in in preseason and in these early games where we're not fully up to speed yet, but the work rate and the energy we're putting in is going to mean as the season goes on, players like Awobi, as we rotate, as we keep things fresh, the the younger guys, the Awobis, the Genduzis are going to have a lot of opportunity to use those legs. And I think Awobi is going to look a whole level better than he has in other seasons when he was playing against a block of block defense that was sat in and we weren't moving them around enough and we weren't pressurizing them enough. So that's what I'm hoping we're going to see a lot more of. I mean, Chelsea played their part in this. I mean, they, whatever, 60% of the possession in the first half means there was a hell of a lot of transitioning back and forward. Yeah. And I do think it loosened it up nicely for us to look good in those those corner pockets behind the two full backs. So you got to account for a little bit of that. But yeah, he looked great. Bellerin looked great. Uh, Mkhitaryan, I, I, coming into this this season, I said he's been our, our overlooked man. I think he's going to have a... Given the system 
Emery wants to play. Um, I think him, Bellerin, Nacho, Awobi, those guys out wide are going to have a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, making and, things happen. And it's going to be tough because, I mean, th- those are positions where he's got to decide, do I want to slot Ozil in there? Or Wobi just look good? How do I get Lacazette in there? Does Aubameyang move out to that position? Aaron, you know, what's Aaron Ramsey's role? You know, and as Clive always talks about, you're going to have to forget about your favorites and he's going to have to pick what's best for the team. But I don't think it's clear what that is yet. And now with Wobi producing a performance like this, he further muddies those waters. So it'll be interesting. It's a tough game if you're a sports writer because I could see a sports writer, you know, they write those stories as the game is going. And the opening line would have been, you know, Mkhitaryan and Bellerin are, t- are two of the goats. And then, you know, Mkhitaryan and Bellerin wind up turning in really impressive attacking displays and maybe pull the game out. And then, you know, Bellerin, I think, was really poor defensively throughout the game. So maybe he goes back to being a problem. It, it was just a very back and forth game in terms of narrative, in terms of how the players were performing and who was really starring in the game and then struggling moments later. So, Tim, you know, before we move away from the first half and what we did well in the first half and get to the really disappointing second half of this game. You know, when it was working, uh, Genduzi was pulling strings. The wide players were really involved. Aubameyang was getting into positions to score, if not scoring. But Ozo wasn't really involved. And, you know, you can criticize Ozo for a lot of things, but usually when it's going well for us, he's pulling the strings and he's at the heart of it all. The City game you can forgive to some extent because we just never were going to have the ball that much. But even when we were involved in this game in the first half and 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 laying into Chelsea to some extent, Ozil struggled to really be a part of that. Is this an even more concerning performance for you than you know maybe the City game or other poor performances because even in the midst of a, a good attacking moment for us, Ozil couldn't really get, get to be a part of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> what did he register? Something like 15 passes completed. And, you know, that's that's such a, that's such a, a woefully low number. Um, the only kind of mitigation I can think of is that Ramsey kind of had a, a similar day against Manchester City and playing in the same position. And, um, you know, may, we don't know how big a problem that is yet, but maybe that's that's a bit of a problem for us at the moment is that we're struggling to get the number 10, whoever it is, involved. Um, we're getting, you know, Iwobi and Mkhitaryan and the fullbacks and, you know, in the guys in the half spaces, um, basically, they're, they're, they're having a bit of fun. Um, but may, maybe the ones in the centre, not so much, because Aubameyang against City was, you know, cut a bit of an isolated figure. Um, until he kind of moved out wide and then he was slightly more involved. And then, you know, basically all of the guys that have played in the centre in the attack over the last two games haven't really been involved. Um, a, lo- a lot of the players been focused, uh, maybe less so against City where we just didn't have the ball, but a lot a lot more of the players just been focused on those kind of inverted wingers um, where we got quite a lot of joy and were working the ball to the byline, which, um, which incidentally was was always you know look back at um any sort of video compilation of the goals arsenal scored under arsene wenger that that was a favored move of his as well maneuvering to the byline but what we've done for the fullbacks is we've given them actually somebody to play off of so bellerin now has mkhitaryan there for the the kind of wall pass and they were picking each other out they had angles so you know when bellerin went forward it wasn't what we saw last season and you know it's a case of needing to whip out the binoculars to find your nearest teammate. He has someone to combine with there. Um, but yeah, so I, 
I am a little bit worried about what we're seeing from Ozil. I'm not sure how surprised I am. I think we, you know, and again, it's not to attribute it because we don't know to specifically to what happened um, over the summer with his situation. Frankly, I think all of the players that were at the World Cup, um, and I don't just mean at Arsenal, just haven't impressed yet. And that I, I think that's to be expected. I've watched a lot of games in the Premier League so far. And I'm I'm struggling to think of too many guys who are at the World Cup who look um, who look anywhere near their best at the moment. But uh, you know, I I did kind of say with Özil, he's he's not the kind of guy that reacts with the clenched fist and you know, to quote Johnny Cash, the spit in the eye um, yeah. kind of thing. That's 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 not really him. Um, so yeah, that, again, it's maybe these two games aren't quite enough, but, but I mean, frankly, the fact that he was hooked so early, um, in the game to me, that, that kind of, uh, maybe overstating it to say that's the manager sending him a message, but it, it does kind of further this democracy idea. It's, I don't care if you're Mezzo's or if you're not playing well, you're coming off. Um, and actually, just to finish my point with Abamyang, I, I too am not that worried about the chances he missed, but there is a £50 million striker sitting on the bench, and if no one's safe, then he's not safe. And with Abamyang, he doesn't contribute an awful lot more, and so if he's missing those chances, it does become a problem for us. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if he if he does that again, then, you know, he, he could be out. Yeah, and, and that's... That is ultimately the problem with the early season fixtures being such difficult fixtures too because do you want to be making these choices based on performances in these kinds of games where you know struggling isn't yeah. necessarily indicative of the fact that you're not the best option for the team because let's face it we're going to play you know how many games are going to be as tough as City home and Chelsea away I mean probably Liverpool away City away that's about it. Spurs away, maybe. You know, I mean, there's there's not too many games that rank up there with the ones we've just played. So y- you have to be careful because if you have a gut feeling about something and a, and a belief in something, I think you have to hold your nerve at least through the next few games. And we'll come on to this at the end of the pod, but the run of eight games coming up next, I think will be where those decisions start to get made. Now, before we move on to the second half, Clive, I want to give you one quick stab at the theory on... Ozil's struggles in this game and maybe why Lacazette might might need to become a part of the starting lineup. Well, I, I think Lacazette should be. Um, but let's see, take a maybe slightly different turn. It is you know, the, the role of a number 10 is, is disappearing in football, right? Um, the role of how we are used to seeing a number 10. And these two games have really shown the lack of influence that players actually had. Why not make that player do a number of things? Why not make it a Lacazette who can be part of your build-up, also press, and also score, right? So I think number 10 football is dying, and we're getting these number eights now, and we're teaching number 10s to be number eights, and we're teaching them to to press, to tackle, and be intense, and not be loose defensively. To have a, a luxury player that's not part of the build-up, stands in spaces where he wants to, on days against top six teams where you don't have the ball, I think is almost playing with 10 men. Um, we did it against City and we've done it against um, Chelsea. And I, I know this is a top six problem. And we're seeing us will have a lack of influence. So we're seeing Meta as will have a lack of influence against top six teams away from home. 
newsflash, right? It's not the first time we've seen this. So we're not seeing nothing new, but it's been, we're seeing it under different managers. Now we're looking at the player and not looking at the manager so much, right? So, so yeah, this is just a part of the metamorphosis we're going to go through. And I think from a footballing standpoint, we are not only finding out about players, but eventually I think we'll find out about what's the best system formation. And I think eventually, without him losing his, his principles and his idea, I think he'll settle on something which allows his principles to flourish, but also allows the team to maximise their potential. Yeah, well said. I mean, look look at Liverpool. They just played today as a time of this recording, and I haven't watched the whole game. I know Liverpool went on a win, but they had a midfield of Keita, Wijnaldum, and Milner. There's no number 10 there. There's not even a remotely number 10 there. Keita was playing the most like a 10 in, in that he was pressing, winning the ball, and carrying it into an advanced position. Firmino drops back to be almost like a false nine, so he becomes like a 10. And Mane and Salah are out in the wide positions coming in from the channels. So there's a team that's expected to push City this season. Whether they will or not is another story altogether, but they don't have a 10. So, you know, De Bruyne... Yeah, they... You know, go ahead. They, they sold... Well, they sold Coutinho, Coutinho yeah. who was <laughs> supposed to be the 10, but he's gone to Barca to be a number eight. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he's he's playing for Brazil as a number eight. And 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 I, I, ultimately, this this is kind of why nobody was really biting on Meza Özil yeah. last year. That's and I, do, I don't think it's down to the quality of the player so much. I think what Clive says is right. It's just the position. And when you look at... Um, probably the most modern approximation of a number 10. I mean, well, who's the number 10 at Spurs, Ericsson or Ali? Um, you can make, make an argument for either of them, but you look at what Ericsson does, um, you know, he does. he's good at a through ball, but he does quite a bit more than that as well, particularly off the ball. Yeah. And Ali Spurs, Ali Spurs first defender, isn't he really, Tim? Mm. He does he does Harry Kane's defending for him. While Harry has a rest, when the ball comes to his feet, he's ready and fresh to to smash it in, right? So um number ten football's dying, mate. And we've put But we've here's seen, the problem. We've got But but here's but the problem. Got, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Sorry, mate. I know we have got because this is what we've got to rid ourselves of. We've got to rid ourselves of I wanna be the ten. Because at Arsenal, there is a role for the 10. And we have got multiple players that want to be in that position. But actually, the game does not warrant that position in its previous guise. So we've got so many players that want to play in that role. And that free role says to me, I don't have to work. I don't have to work. And I don't like that. I like to see a much more collective working spirit. And I think this is what we need to do. We need to rid ourselves of this sort of DNA we previously had and start to be a far more collective team. And what we're seeing right now is breakdowns in that collectiveness. And um, we can all see it, right? It's well, not hard to spot. Yeah, look, I think the problem for Ozil is, I agree, I don't think that we are set up to play with a true number 10, and playing him in midfield creates a real problem in terms of our control and pressure there. I mean, Jorginho is basically given all the space in the world to look up and pick passes all game, in part because the player who should be putting pressure on that position is not doing it. But when you look at Iwobi and Mkhitaryan, the other positions that Ozil could theoretically shift to, you can't give that player a free roll because if we're going to push up our fullbacks and have them pressing, those guys have to work their socks off to drop back into the space that the fullbacks have vacated and then get forward for overlaps and things like that. And so, you know, is Ozil going to do that role? It's a real tricky problem because we've given 350,000 pounds a week to a supremely talented footballer who right now looks an uncomfortable fit in any of the positions where we would naturally play him. But again, that could all look very different against a slow and overmatched West Ham midfield 
uh, next weekend where he gets a hat trick of assists, you know, playing Aubameyang in for fun. So we'll just have to bite our tongue momentarily. Paul, the the halftime swap is obviously the big change, and with it came a change of playing style. So a couple of things. Let me just start with the quick question. Do you think that the coach was right, that Emery was right to uh, take Shaka off at halftime? He was sitting on a yellow card. He had also really struggled to influence the game. He brings in Torreira in the moment, forgetting with hindsight momentarily. In the moment, was that the switch you think needed to be made? Yeah, I do. I was fully supportive of a it at the time. I mean, you can't, you know, the first half is no way to run a railway. Um, part of what Emery's trying to do here is to put out a statement of intent as to how he wants to play. He doesn't, he doesn't actually uh, uh, want to throw chaos into the mix just because things might break his way. I mean, he, the, if we play these two big games at the start of the season and lose both of them and have no identity when we come out of it. It's just a clusterfuck. So he needed to impose a more balanced game on things, even if we loved the way the end of the first half changed. I don't think we should assume that Chelsea were coming out to play exactly the same way their last 15 minutes went. They were always going to come, come, come out in a more energetic and controlled way. So we need to factor that into our understanding of it so uh, i was fully on board with the switch uh terrera made perfect sense and in fact if we'd sent out that line out that we sent out in the second half in the first half nobody would have said oh that's negative or whatever it was just in comparison to the the absolute clusterfuck that uh, broke our way in the last 15 minutes of that game for which we should give chelsea a lot of credit too i mean they didn't track any of the six or seven guys who ran into our box and had a, a pot at goal that were basically all 50-50 shots. I don't think we can assume the second gonna, half was going to be more of the same as the first, even if we sent it out with Chaka instead of Torreira. So yeah, I, no, I, no issues. I think there that's had to be right. more control, no matter what happened. There were, no, there were no guarantees either way. No matter what happened, there had to be more control. It doesn't mean... You wanted us to sit back as much as we ended up doing, but I think there's ways of explaining that too. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I want to dive into this more and, and get into what really changed the second half and how much of it was on the players, how much of it's on the coach. But before we do that, I want to let Scott break down for us statistically how different those halves were so we have a platform for sort of understanding it and debating it and discussing it. So we'll take a break. We'll listen to Scott give us that information. Then we'll come back and we will absolutely hammer the manager for the second half statistics. We'll be, uh, tactics. We'll be back right after this. Hermes Link, Ice Blue Mink. Tat on my ribs like I do not know what permanent is. They want me gone. Wait for the kicker. Bury me now and I only get bigger. That's word of my nigga. Yeah. October Furman and Cut. All right, we're back with Scott. You can find him on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. Hello, Scott. Hello. Yeah, good to have you back. So let's get into some of the statistics behind a match that was really chaotic and a little bit of a hard match to wrap your head around because it was so different from one half to the next watching it. But I think the statistics bear that out too. So maybe we can just start with you giving us the overall XG for the match and then how that broke out first half versus second half. Yeah, so overall, I had this one um, actually tied at both teams with 2.02 XG for the match, which is, you know, pretty rare that it actually comes out as a tie. And the funny thing about that is, it, I think you could 
argue that on the balance, that would have been a fair outcome. That, you know, admittedly, we really gave them the impetus in the second half. And so maybe we don't deserve anything because of that second half performance. But, you know, right up until late in the game, it was a 2-2 game. And and the XG sort of reflects that. Unfortunately, it's not how it finished. Now, we really had them on the rack during periods of the first half. Admittedly, they had us on the rack in some respects too. But the big chances fell to us. So first half XG, that's where we actually really dominated, didn't we? Yeah, exactly. We are just under two. So 1.97 in that first half to 0.79 for Chelsea. 1.97 would be good for a game. But what that leaves me to observe then is we had what 0.05 xg the entire second half that's exactly right that's some good yeah that's terrible yeah well so all right obviously gave them the impetus and and really fell out of the game as an attacking force in the second half which is unfortunate because it looked like it was by design i mean just to your eye did you feel that the the lack of attacking thrust by us in the second half was uh, a byproduct of something chelsea did or the direction of the the coach the substitutions a combination of the three um, I, I, my impression was that it seemed to be a bit of a, a tactical change where Arsenal seemed to focus more on defending and not quite be as adventurous um, going forward. I know one of the things that you know they were so successful at was attacking the wide areas in the first half, but it seemed that they kind of did that a lot less going in the second half. So, I mean, it's hard to say, is it because they couldn't hold on to the ball? Is it something that they did tactically? Or Chelsea just were able to just control the game with their their midfield better? Because I know once that, uh, I can't even pronounce the name, uh, Kovic, their new midfielder. Kovacic? Kovacic, there we go. See, yeah, those... (laughs) Eastern European names it's, are always it's, tough. It's becoming your brand. I mean, you might as well just lean into it at this point. <laughs> I, I, I do it unintentionally, and it'll all still be my brand. Perfect. Um, yeah. But yeah, so once he came on, he actually had a 100% pass percentage, so he really um, wow. helped give them a, you know, a control of the ball that Arsenal just couldn't match. And yeah, So it, there was a number of factors, but I think a lot of it was that Arsenal seemed to be a little bit more defensive and that it almost seemed that Emery was willing to take the draw. Yeah, and that's a shame because it just didn't work out that way. Now, in the first half when we arguably should have taken the lead and and maybe even widened the lead, it was down to really four big chances. Two that fell to Aubameyang, one to Mkhitaryan, one to Iwobi. First of all, just us having four... Now, all of those were classed as big chances, correct? Um, All but the, the last Iwobi chance. Okay, so three. Did we have four big chances in the half, though? We did. So the one that Iwobi scored was a big chance. Okay, so... My understanding is that's pretty unusual for us. Based on our performance last year, that's not something that uh, we were used to doing away to the big sides, was it? Yeah, I, I don't know if Arsenal had four total big chances against the other top six teams away. I'd have yeah, to that's incredible. Check so, it, but yeah, it was not. Yeah, it was four in a game is is pretty good um, to do. Four and a half is really good. And and that's why it's so exciting and so frustrating in equal measure. Because on the one hand, you look at it and you say wow, you know, we we created all these chances that we weren't creating against the big teams last season. That's a really good sign that our pressing, our transition play is improving. And yet, to not come away from anything with the match, to blow the chances, three of the four big chances, is so hard to swallow. Because you really, you feel that while we want to give Emery patience, obviously, getting a point or even three in this match would have been a massive step forward towards the ultimate goal of getting back in the top four this season. So, in terms of the XG of the missed chances, let's walk through them. So the first one is the Obamiang miss off the Bellerin pullback after that beautiful Ganduzi pass. 
That's a sitter by Aubameyang standards. Where does that rank in XG? Um, so that one actually came out as a 0.4. Um, so the model didn't quite love it, love it. Um, to me, I thought it was a, a great chance. And if I would have doing doing a little bit of a you know adjusting for how well I think Aubameyang finishes, I would probably put this one probably closer to you know a 70% chance of being scored. Um, but yeah, that's you know right from the center of the box, big chance, assisted with a, a pullback. It's a, a good shot there. It's a pretty open net to, to aim at, too. Yeah, and then the one that follows that is the Mkhitaryan miss. I'm yeah, so going to try one, to go through these chronologically. This this yeah. one's a, a big chance as well. Exactly. This one's 0.5, so it's, it's slightly higher than the other one because it's about um, two or three feet closer um, and just sli- ever so slightly better angle, um, but pretty much the exact same um, everything else. And again, wide open net. This one's actually even further wide open. Um, compared to what Obama the keeper's had. more out of the out of the play at that point. The only thing about that one, and I, and I could be misremembering it, but I feel like the ball hopped up a little higher. It did. So, it was. It did yeah. come in with a, a little bit of a highness. And see, the model doesn't necessarily know that. Um, it just sees that it was a, a pullback cross that was given to him there. So it doesn't see where. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, either way, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, Oba's getting killed for his miss and understandably because it's what he's paid all that money to do is score from there and then missed again. But, you know, Mkhitaryan also had some really, really bad moments in this game, but two really good ones, including the goal and an assist. And so it's tough to to evaluate Mkhitaryan, I think, fairly and accurately because without the goal and the assist, it's a one, it's a zero performance, but the goal and the assist are massive contributions. It's rare that you find a player who had such a Jekyll and Hyde performance. Um, the, the next big chance falls to, uh, Aubameyang and it's, it's not quite a tip in. It's, it's a, it's a six yard box cross chance just outside the near post, right? I mean, what is, what does the XG model think that one's worth? That one's 0.34. So that one, it's got a a tough air angle. So it's not something that's an easy finish, even though it's a lot closer to the goal than the, the other two shots. Um, This one, the um, the keeper looks like he's got it covered pretty well, but he still, yeah, something that you'd expect to at least get on target and challenge the keeper a little bit more. Although this one is a little bit harder with the, you know, the ratings. Yeah, again, a player you still expect to do better there, but not quite as simple. And lastly, the Awobi one that he misses, not technically classed as a big chance. Uh, What makes that one a little harder, at least according to the XG model, and what does it rank? So this one, I think it's because it's a, a more crowded box. So this one, I see there's one, two, three, four, five Chelsea defenders between him and the goal. So he doesn't have quite as an easy of spot to, to aim at to actually put this one in the net. Um, you know, the distance wise, it's right at the, the penalty spot. So it's pretty good angle for where you can shoot for the goal. So this one comes out at 0.015. So still a, a very good chance but not quite as good as the other ones. Well, on another day, you you would hope to score a couple of those, let alone one, all go begging, and in the end, cost us a chance at the result, which is unfortunate. But I want to get to players individually as well. There were some very curious performances in this game. Um, There was the Jekyll and Hyde performance of Mkhitaryan. There's the, you know, Aubameyang nightmare. And and, and by the way, I just stopped there real quick. I just want to get your, you know, one sentence or two sentence thought on this. When you're evaluating the performance of a center forward, obviously their job is to score, but do you come away from a game like this concerned about Aubameyang for the misses or encouraged about Aubameyang going forward because he continues to get into those high XG scoring positions? Um, To me, this is an encouraging thing. 
I don't I don't see anything in Aubameyang's history to suggest that this will be a, a regular problem. Um, it's not like Ramsey, um, you know, of a couple years ago where he was always getting in good positions, but when he was getting those shots, he didn't feel as confident that he would be able to finish them. Um, to me, Aubameyang is a, a proven finisher and that this shouldn't be a worry. It's just, you know, sometimes you flip a coin and it comes up heads twice instead of tails. So it's, uh, to me, it's, uh, not a not a worry yet, I, and I'm very encouraged, um, especially after being um, so snuffed out by Manchester City. That you know, it's good to see Arsenal create good chances because that was the thing with Manchester City; they would get two good positions, but then not have the final ball. Today, you know, yesterday, Saturday, they had the final ball, but just couldn't put it in the net. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate, right? Because I mean, you you want to see the progress that Emery is making and the two opening fixtures have made it hard to do that. But I think in the Chelsea game, you can see signs that there is a plan here that can be successful. I think he abandoned it second half and that's another story, but certainly in the first half we saw some, uh, some signs that that approach was bearing fruit. Now one player who divides opinion, unfortunately is Mesut Ozil, but usually even in games where people think he was poor, his statistics suggest that there was more to his performance than people saw with their eyes. I'm curious about this one. I thought that this was a game that passed him by a little bit. Statistically, is there sort of a, a defense for his performance, or do the statistics maybe show that this was, in fact, not one of his better outings? Uh, it's definitely not one of his his better outings. Um, looking at the, the offensive value added, um, he definitely uh, rates pretty low, even though that that's a, a model that's basically built for him to exceed at. Um, he actually just had the 0.14 offensive value added, so that puts him behind uh, Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan, Awobi, Monreal, Guendouzi. Um, so basically, almost all of the, the other uh, midfielders, outfield players were, were better than him on the day. Um, and it's just, yeah, surprising. He, he was just couldn't get involved in the match, which was a bit surprising because normally he's so good at being able to find space. But Chelsea really just neutralized him. Yeah, that's that's a problem. And I think, you know, it's it's one thing when the casual observer thinks he had a bad game, but he's doing the things that you later realize really influence the game and maybe influence an outcome. In this game, I just think he failed to influence it at all. And we don't want to get into you know how much he's getting paid as a referendum on his performances, but we need big performances from Ozil, and I think it was telling that he did get taken off uh, when he did. I, I do want to focus on a couple of positives. One is uh, Alex Awobi. You may have missed this, Scott, but he was my pick for the uh, surprise breakout player of the season. I've been a big Awobi backer for a long time. Uh, you can listen to our season preview pod and hear that. It is recorded. It is on record. I thought he had a great game. He did miss a reasonable chance. He did score a goal. Uh, I thought he used his body to shield the ball well to, to keep possession, created problems down that left-hand side when we were really attacking well. Uh, how, how did his game look on the stat sheet? Um, I was very impressed with it as well. Yeah, so, yeah, you, yeah, he had the two key passes also, so where he created two chances, and um, in addition, um, both of those were big chances, so that was really good. Um, I thought that he looked good uh, watching the game at using his body to protect the ball um, you know, he, he looks like he's bulked up over the summer. And to me, it, it seems like he's really using that to his advantage. I was really impressed with that because there would be times um, when he was, you know, the last two years where he would be a little bit too easy to get the ball taken off of him. Um, but that seemed to be um, a really positive thing that I liked. Um, there was a couple of, you know, little minor things. He only completed one dribble of the four that he attempted. Um, he lost possession six times. 
Um, overall, he's still rated as one of our, our better players on the day, um, you know, adding 0.37 um, offensive value added. Um, a lot of that came from, you know, his shots. He had the good shots, but also his passing um, was one of the better passing numbers on the team as well. Yeah, that's great to see. And again, one of the things I've always been critical of the guy for is his final third contribution. And he brought some of that on this day. So that's really important. I want to finish with a midfield look, and that's Ganduzi and Shaka. I think you came away from the City game thinking Ganduzi had played pretty well, but then upon further viewing and reflection, thought maybe on second thought the game had been less effective than than you had initially believed. In terms of this game, and maybe just comparing and contrasting with Shaka's contribution, I realize he was only on the pitch for a half, but how do you, how does Ganduzi's performance look in this game, and especially vis-a-vis his midfield partner? Um, so I actually came um, away from this one even more impressed. Um, you know, like you said, that I, I did have a, a few things where I thought that there was some some worrying um, tells, but for this one, it really looked like he he did well to to clean up some of those mistakes. Um, I know one of the things that I was a little bit worried about was his sloppiness in the defensive third. Um, this match, he was 100% um, passing in the defensive third, so that was really good. Um, he actually only lost possession one time um, in this match, um, so that was another huge improvement after losing it six times against City. Um, he also was, you know, leading led the team in dribbles, although we're not a dribbly team right now with two. Um, and then he also um, really shows a knack for, you know, line-breaking passes. Um, the three balls are one of those weird stats where uh, I, I watched in the game, I, I could have seen maybe another couple of them that were would have been my thought for three balls. Um, but he shows with, with one of the two that Arsenal attempted in this match, and he actually completed his. So that I'm was, guessing was really impressive. it's the one to Bellerin that leads to the... Obamiang sitter, and that is a hell of a line breaking through ball. It splits exactly, the it full is. back was, and yeah, the center it's back. Basically, the pre assist. Yeah, fantastic pass. So, I, I think that's encouraging. I mean, cleaner with the ball, and and by comparison, I mean Shaka gets hooked at halftime in part, according to Emery, because of the yellow card. But uh, anything from his performance statistically that stands out to you? I mean, the one thing that is a standout is that, you know, his XG chain um, and XG buildup are both um, the leaders for the team, um, which is a bit surprising because I thought that he he played rather poorly and I thought that that was a a great sub. You know, we talked at halftime um, that I agreed with that sub. I thought it was a a good one to be making. Um, But it does show that, you know, when Arsenal do good things, he is often involved in them. Um, I just thought that he didn't really play all that well. And that's really what the shots show. You actually show that his offensive value added was just a negative 0.1. So basically a zero on the day. Um, his positive pass was completely nullified by his negative passing. So it was a bit of a, a weird conundrum to, to put in where he, the few times that he did get involved in the play, Arsenal did really well. Um, you know, he was involved in pretty much the build up to every shot in the, the first half. But then after that, you know, Arsenal really did struggle to progress the ball through midfield um, in that second half, which, again, we talked about earlier. So there's there's a number of factors that could have been um, dealing there, but it's hard to say. Yeah, and he, you know, he had that silly yellow card. I mean, when he feels frustrated with his performances, you see it uh, with his discipline. And and that was on display with that yellow card. So it's, uh, you know, it's it's a little disappointing for him. Maybe just as a, as a finishing note, though, Torreira came on and maybe had a little bit of a rougher experience than we were hoping for. Now, I feel bad for him because he came on in a period where we made a tactical switch that I don't think played to our strengths. But, uh, you know, he he did give the ball away for a chance that was well saved. 
He did commit a foul when he was run past by Hazard, and he did fail to track the Alonzo run for their goal. So overall, just your quick 30,000-foot view of Torreira's second-half appearance, and, and if there's anything statistically that stands out at you there. Yeah, I'm here. So um, the big the big thing here for that one is that one dispossessed. Yeah, you could definitely tell that it's a, a guy who's been in Syria too long, where they don't press too often, and you have a lot of you know time and space um, when you get the ball in the defensive third. That was not the case where he just kind of held on to it too long. Um, that one was his only um, time he was dispossessed, but it was a big big issue, and that one actually came out as a, a negative point zero one or negative point one, which is one of the the higher ones that I've seen. But you know, in terms of so that's that on the, that total offensive value added when you do something bad, you have a negative value, and that's a pretty high negative value. It is. Oh, and I mean, you know, he gave it away right at the edge of his eighteen yard box, and I was you know it's surprising that you know Chelsea weren't able to to do anything else. Um, so that one big mistake actually canceled out all of the the positives that he had um, on the day. Um, you know, he, his passing looks pretty good, um, rather safe, but, you know, not bad. So to me, if he's able to, to clean those things up and it'll be interesting to see him get a, a full game, I think he might be in line to start, um, you know, I guess what's him. I think people were overly critical of his performance and I saw him doing some good shielding throughout the half. But the fact is he came into a part of the game where we seemed determined to just sit and defend deep in a low block. Now, some people would argue that that happened because... Torreira came on and we lost some initiative in, in midfield. I'm not sure I see it that way. In any event, I think that'll do it for the statistical part of the podcast. We'll get back to the crew and and break down a few more of the details of the game. But Scott, we're definitely going to need you because uh, when we beat West Ham like 20 to nil next week, we're, we're going to have a lot of statistical analysis to do with that. So make sure you got the, the spreadsheet and the database fired up and ready. Um, you know, exactly. That, yeah. Hopefully we're celebrating like a triple hat trick from Aubameyang to, to, you know, make up for the miss. Yeah. And then the debate at the end of the season, if we finish sixth and Aubameyang finishes on 31 goals, it'd be, well, he did have nine against West Ham. So I'll take it. It'll be fine. Anyway, Scott's on Twitter. Oh, underscore that underscore crab. Scott, always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back with the crew and finish up. Hermes link. Ice blue mink. Tied on my ribs like I do not know what permanent is. They want me gone. Out of the picture. Bury me now and I only get bigger. That's word of my word of my. I'm so hot. Yeah, okay, I'm we're so back right now. That's uh, that's a statistical summation of how different the first and second half were uh, second halves were uh, in addition to how some of the players performed. But now I want to get into sort of analyzing the changes there. And I'll pick right back up with Paul. Uh, because uh, he was doing such a brilliant job before the break. But Paul, you know, one of the things that I think affects managers is how a game plays out psychologically. So, you know, if we had taken a 2-0 lead and Chelsea had pegged us back, he might have reacted differently. If we had fallen 2-0 behind and not only come back to tie it 2-2, but maybe taken a couple of those other chances and been up 4-2, he may have approached it differently. But I know how I felt at halftime. And the way I felt was like, relief it had been such a scary opening to the game it looked like we could get a hiding it looked like we were so open and then suddenly we punch our way back into the game we have them rocked they're on their heels we're creating chances we get the two goals to get back to level and I didn't know if I could handle another half like that and I kind of wonder if Emery felt the same way and he just said you know what somehow we're at 2-2 I'm calling off the dogs I'm going to sit back and I'm going to try to protect this and get away with this and that's kind of what it looked like to me 
Um, you know, to bear that out just a little bit, just one point of reference. In the first half, Petrchek playing out from the back was 16 of 19 overall passing, and he only went long once or twice. Second half, he was 9 of 17, okay? So just over 50% passing and overwhelmingly kicked long uh, and and not particularly effectively, which just kind of tells you overall how the strategy changed. And we really uh, ceded the impetus in the game to them. In your mind, was the change in the second half down to the players or do you think that we were specifically instructed to sit in a low defensive block and try to ride out the game? Okay, so here's how I see the second half. Um, we were not planning to sit back in a low defensive block. We were certainly not planning to be as helter-skelter as the first half. But again, Chelsea played their role. They tightened things up. They got a bit more control. The The chances weren't as... Uh, it was a lot more like the first 30 minutes than the last 15 minutes of the first half. So if you watch the game from minute 45 through to when... Uh, Hazard and uh, what's-his-face? Kovacic. Kovacic, come on. Um, It's actually a reasonable start to the second half. We create two really good chances. One is the offside uh, dink from Ozil to Aubameyang that he puts in the net. I'd like to think he would have done that either way. And the other one is er very early on at the start of the second half. It it actually comes before it. That ball across the six-yard box... Those are kind of the two main chances we create. But the run of play for the next, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes before um, Hazard and Kovacic come come on, we're well in the game. It's not as helter-skelter as the last 15 minutes of the first half, but we're well in this game. Uh, we're not sitting as deep. Uh, we're doing okay. Then they make their swap. And uh, and it's kind of interesting when you see the, the chess moves because they make their swap. Emery very quickly afterwards realize how much trouble we're in as Kovacic. I mean, I couldn't tell the difference between Kovacic and uh, Hazard at times with the way Kovacic was playing. I mean, he came on and he started pinging the ball all over the place and they had the legs and energy and they just really took it to us. And Emery adm- immediately hit the button and said, get Ramsey on there. And he he explains in his post-game interview why he did it. He said, we were getting pushed back. We were sitting too deep, and I wanted to bring on Ramsey to push us forward. I really think there's a dividing line before and after Hazard and Kovacic come along. And if you if you watch it as two separate, that, that that's where the game of two halves really is. To me, that's the dividing line. That would be my yeah. – uh, everything after that point – they just fucking hammer us. They run rings around us, and it's Hazard and Kovacic. Well, the the only change that you can really say on our side that you can analyze in terms of what made it so different from half to half would be the inclusion of Torreira and removal of Shaka um, at, at, at the half because that's really where the game changed. And, Tim, you know, I, I am of the belief that the manager instructed us to sit back more, to play deeper. I mean— there has to be some explanation for Czech kicking long as much as he did in the second half, and he didn't do it mm-hmm. in the first half. But I know you feel that it was the wrong time, based on our back channel, for the mm-hmm. the coach to test out the Ganduzi Torreira midfield partnership. And it is an interesting one with Shaka from the Scott section. You know, one thing Scott points out is that Shaka wasn't necessarily having a very good game, but every single shot we took, Shaka was involved in the buildup to that 
ultimately mm. to that shot being taken. So, I mean, do you attribute more of the problems we had to Shaka's removal and Torreira's inclusion, or do you think there was a very explicit instruction to play just a few yards deeper and, and be more compact? I think maybe it's a bit of both. So there was there was clearly an instruction to play a little bit deeper, which I can understand because Chelsea were getting through us really, really easily. And obviously the manager assessed the situation and thought, right, we've got out of jail a bit here. We've got back into the game. Let's try and keep it tight. What I can't work out is whether the instruct. I mean, it looked like they were playing for 2-2 to me because the ball was going long. Aubameyang and Ozil we're just watching balls sail over their heads. Um, the fullbacks were really, really reserved. Again, I, I, I kind of get that. I get that. But what I didn't get was, was it just that Ozil and Aubameyang really weren't at the races? Or was there something else going on? And actually, when you look at the substitutions that Emery made, none, none of them were conservative subs. Uh, Ramsey for Ozil, that's that's a straight swap. Torreira for Xhaka is a straight, a straight swap. Um, and then Lacazette came on for Iwobi. So, I mean, no, none of those are conservative substitutions. So, I mean, maybe he didn't say, right, just sit back and take the 2-2 and don't try and attack at all. But there was really, really, um, there was just really a lack of passing options. And so I, I don't think it's a huge coincidence that we lost a little bit of control when Xhaka went off albeit I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I was mortified when he was dragged off at halftime. I, I thought he finished the first half really, really well, actually. But, you know, to be honest, the first half an hour, he was an absolute disaster. Um, perhaps with the caveat that neither of the goals had anything to do with him. But um, Not yeah, to I mean, mention he, how he was... stupid the yellow card is. And if he doesn't pick it up, there's a yeah. chance he gets to start the second half yeah. and maybe we don't get pushed into our shell as much. So he needs to look at himself there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that was on the heart. You know, that that wasn't a necessary foul. I think that wasn't one where Chelsea were breaking away. Like I'll take a yellow card if Chelsea look like they're about to break. But that was just a dangled leg on the halfway line and wasn't really necessary. That was a little bit of the old Jackie, you know, where he panics, where he loses control. But he, he seemed to sort himself out at the end of the first half. But ultimately, like I say, I can't pretend that I thought at the time that that was enough to save him. And to be honest, even if he'd been on in the second half, without the fullbacks um, pushing up and providing any sort of width, that I mean, that's where most of his passes go. They go out to the onrushing fullbacks. That's what he's good at. He's good at spreading the play. Um, and that's what he did. He, he made like, in the build-up to that second goal, he made like three passes. And I think all of them were outside him. And he wouldn't have had those options in the second half. He'd have looked up. He'd have seen Ozil and Aubameyang kind of standing, looking at him on the halfway line. He, you know, maybe he'd have been able to do something with that. But everything we've read and the little bit we've seen about Torreira suggests that he's no slouch in possession, that we really shouldn't suffer and struggle that much. Gwenduzi's not either. He he played the best ball of the game. Um, again, he's he's had some some really, really interesting passes. So I, I think it's maybe not a total coincidence. We lost a bit of control without Xhaka, but... I think it's more to do with the fact that we weren't pushing the fullbacks on and we just didn't have the numbers forward. So every time we tried to go forward, we couldn't build anything and we just kept losing it. Yeah, and it, it was really frustrating to watch because going into the half, as nerve-wracking as it was, it looked like we could hurt them as much as they could hurt us, and yeah. we did not hurt them at all. I mean, again, worth bears repeat, bear, 
it bears repeating. It's worth bearing repeating. Bears are repeating frequently um, that we had 0.05 XG in the second half after having 1.97 in the first. So, you know, disappointing to say the least. Clive, Torreira comes on and, and maybe a reminder, it's a 22-year-old learning a new league thrown into the deep end. And while I thought he was great against City, this was not necessarily his best performance. There were things he did that I liked, but he had an early giveaway. He thought he had more time on the ball. He got pressed. He lost it. They had a good chance. He fouled Hazard when Hazard got by him uh, just outside the edge of the area for a, a dangerous free kick that was well saved by check. He was run past by Alonso for the goal, and while Lacazette has a lot of culpability in that goal, Torreira ultimately doesn't do the thing we brought in Torreira to do, which is track a runner into the box. So, I mean, is this our expectations being brought back down to earth for the Uruguayan, and, and maybe it's going to be much more of a work in process, progress? No, I, I think he'll be absolutely fine. I think and what we have to think about here God bless you. as to why that happened, right? So the second half. And I think what we're trying to achieve is a level of belief. I think we, in the City game, we lacked a collective belief in our exit plan. And we have, that's why we had too many touches in the back end of the pitch. And in this game, I think we had them stone dead. We had them stone dead. Halftime came at a bad time. And I think the way we missed our chances actually impacted our belief it's going to be our day. I think they were quite damaging misses. And then we had another miss when it hits Aubameyang's standing leg. And I just think, hold on, is this our day? And when that happens, you you drop. I do agree with Tim. I think we dropped. It was an instruction to, to cover the green grass. And why, why wouldn't you? But I think it impacted our belief our offensive belief to really put pressure on them and overload. I think we became conservative. And when you're zero points and you've got a new manager and you're sitting there at 2-2 away at Chelsea, the human reaction is to say, maybe we hold what we have. And I don't put it down to Shaka at all. I think he was, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a, quite a big fan of Shaka actually, but if you look at how he started his first season, you look at how he started his second season, he's a slow starter. He looks cumbersome in those early points of the season, he starts to look like the player that gets fouls and gets sent off. Right, So once he's up to speed, I'm sure he'll be better. Will it be enough speed for the system that Emery's playing? I'm not so sure. Torreira absolutely will be the modern player, what we need to sit in, to sit in that hole and dictate, be available, go and engage. I don't see him as an issue. The fact he's out in wide areas in the fullback areas, trying to cover. It's exactly what we want to see and exactly what wasn't happening in the first half once our wide men was overloaded. So it's just a work in progress. And everything's been highlighted because we're playing the top six teams. And I think once we settle down and play teams which are not as good as us, I think you're going to see the belief grow, the confidence grow. And I've got these next eight games. I've nicknamed them Project 24. Right. Once we get these, once we get these next twenty-four points in our back pocket, really easily, I think after that, the next time we play a top sixteen will be the time to see who can stretch, who can stay, who's the future, and who's not the future, and then we await the January transfer window. Yeah, and it's. I mean, it is worth repeating. Eight the winnable games may be overstating it. I mean, certainly none of them are against the top six. There are some tough games in there, but. They are winnable games, and they are a run where I think our whole season hinges on what we do in these next eight. And the way we look and feel as a team can be very different. And it is unfortunate that we started with these two because, you know, whatever little signs of positive 
development there might be that are overshadowed by the result, which is understandable, but unfortunate. Paul, before we start to get to the takeaways from the game, I just want to get to their goal uh, that wins it. Really deflating and really unfortunate because holding on for a point there, I think, would have been such a powerful step in the right direction. But ultimately, Lacazette drops deep to receive the ball, tries to play a wall pass. It comes up short. He winds up out on the wing, isolated with Hazard. He doesn't foul him, which he should. He doesn't stay with him, which he should. I mean, I realize asking him to stay with Hazard is a big ask, but I wouldn't say he necessarily did even the job he could do. And then Torreira... It was, yeah. I mean, it was just... It was lazy. And then Torreira doesn't track Alonso's run into the box, which he should do, and it's a goal. And so, I mean, first things first, for you is is the villain of the piece there, Lacazette. How much responsibility does Torreira have? Do you think they both kind of share it evenly? Um... Well, I definitely think uh, Lacazette, Torreira, you could just kind of imagine maybe he's not as in sync as he, he should be, but he should have the legs to do the tracking. So that w- that's a bit disappointing. And then everybody else is maybe, you know, a, a half a yard where they should away from where they should be. I mean, Bellerin's not too, too sharp on, on cutting out the cross, but but you can begin to make excuses for the other players, the Bellerins of this world, because they've been dragging their arses all over the pitch. Torreira and, and Lacazette, it, it, you know, that, that's, where, that's where the fault lays. But you, you've also got to say, I mean, fuck, the last thing you want is Hazard, who's only got like five or ten minutes in his legs, just raring to go. So uh, he's quite good. It was and, so scary uh, when he came on, man. <laughs> you just man. you knew he was going to be involved, and he was, and and he's dangerous. And you know the thing that's really scary for me is just, you know, I watch Hector Bellerin, and I love him, and I've always been a huge defender of his. But is he getting worse defensively? I mean, is in one-on-one defensive situations, is is he becoming a bit of a liability? Um, it feels like he's been that way for a little while. Uh, I, one of the interesting things, um, I think was. Us, uh, no, it was uh, Lewis Ambrose did this thing on uh, for the City game that had some speeds included in the top speeds. And so I took the opportunity afterwards to ask him, uh, is Bellerin getting slower? Because when was the last time you saw Bellerin torch anybody or do that thing where he gives somebody a five yeah, that's yard? That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. But apparently his speeds are still kind of where they've been they're they're, they're still top notch he turned but on he the pace does... for the run uh where he pulled back to Aubameyang I mean yeah. some of that was just the timing of the run but he he got yeah. to the byline pretty quick but he hasn't been really eye-catching for a while both in his play and in terms of just just like the flames coming at the back end um and I I I guess what I'd say is I'm looking forward to Licksteiner getting a few games for whatever reasons um so that Hector has to deal with what what a real fullback looks like, because if he can add what he's got to what Licksteiner ha- has in terms of savvy and street smarts, um, and ability to kind of front up front up to attackers, he'll become the player uh, he needs to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he does not. There was a while when he we all had him on track to become world class. Well. He's not that, is he? He's he's not on a track to become anything beyond what he is right at the moment. Now, early days and new manager, and I think he, as much as anybody, will benefit from having more defined roles and knowing 
when he's doing something right and doing something wrong. Wrong, and I really do actually think Licksteiner is going to be really good news for him. So, but yeah, it's I'm definitely a bit. Con- I love Hector, right? But I'm definitely concerned on the fact that he's kind of stagnated, and he just seems a little off all the time. It's weird because I want to be encouraged by the what he's doing in the attacking half, which over the first two games yeah. I've seen him do some things that we've been begging for him to do, better cutbacks, better crosses, uh, more intelligent carrying of the ball. But the yeah. defensive part is, is a worry. I, I want to get to the part of the but, podcast. Yeah, go ahead. So, Elliot, before you go on, just want to make sure, because we'll have a tendency to kind of hammer how we sat back and the defense and stuff. Just make sure we have a little section on check. Well, he, I, I think he was great, you know, and has continued to be great. And I think even with his short distribution in the first half, he showed he's getting a little better at it. So I, I don't think we have to focus on it other than say, right now, there's no reason to believe Leno's getting the job. Um, I, I think what's really interesting about him is he, you know, we know there are players who take a bit of a dip and it's so easy to find reasons to write them off. Um, and so I think there's a lot of players who can, you know, Mkhitaryan, we're a bit ambivalent on, but you can see six months of his his season with us last year being under a cloud. You see a Wobi, you see uh, Bellerin, all with opportunities to step up. And then you see somebody died in the wall, 36 years old or 37, whatever he is now, who can't possibly learn any new tricks and yet is adapting. He, he'll never be the best goalkeeper with the ball at his feet, but he's adapting. No, you're right. He's growing. trying. He's fighting. He wants his place. He's standing up for himself, and he's keeping the young new guy out of the team. And, and he's done what he's been asked to do, at least in terms of keeping the ball out of the net. I, I agree yeah. with you. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, and, and he, he he'll probably turn to shit from now, but but it, but it <laughs> he, he has shown that he's bounced back and come back at it. And I think he was kind of good the last few games of last season. And it, it's just, to me, the most interesting part of the game uh, is seeing players adapt and respond and grow. Uh, I much prefer when we solve our solutions with our own players than than buying them in. Yeah. But I understand why you got to buy in the talent. To, to me, that's really exciting. And that's what I want to see from Emery and Emery's team to see these players respond if they can. I just want us to splash the cash. Anyway, uh, let's get to the part of the podcast where we draw wild sweeping conclusions that are totally irresponsible. And I'll start with you, Tim, because that's kind of your brand. Um, Mm -hmm. So how disappointed should we be after this two games? How much are you ready? How many conclusions are you ready to draw from them? And last, but maybe put it first, do you think we maybe just saw a hint of the Unai Emery we were warned Emery we were warned about just a little bit before he arrived in the way he approached the second half against Chelsea? He had a, a, a reputation for being very conservative in big games in in La Liga. We saw what he did with PSG when they had the big lead. Uh, I think it was against Barcelona in the in the Champions League where he just went too conservative and got caught. Mm. Um, you know how much of this is something that that is a little bit of previous for him and and where do you stand in terms of our our position right now after two games yeah so I so yeah I, I think we did see a little bit of the kind of cautious away from home against the big side Emery in that second half I still think in the long run that's not a bad thing for Arsenal for where they are right now um, I think maybe if and when he polishes this team up a, a bit and picks up its confidence and they start to feel like a big team again and rather than the poor relations in the top six, then maybe we'll move on from the need to do that. But at the moment, 
I don't think it was the right thing to do in this game just because I think we were getting through Chelsea really easily and I think the game was there to be won and I was prepared to see a bit of a knife fight in the second half. I was prepared to see us duke it out with Chelsea and I wasn't 100% convinced that would win us the game but I thought that gave us a chance. It certainly gave us more of a chance than what we did. So I didn't think it was the right thing for this particular game but if we're drawing away at Man City, maybe at halftime, um, that's well, at a minimum, a like he a should bring dream, on an extra it? five or six <laughs> players, right, and just sit him in front of the goal. <laughs> Can we play with eighteen? <laughs> but if you know, if we're at Spurs, if we're at Anfield, if we're at City, and it's a tight game at halftime, I I don't really have a huge problem with us um, going for a point because I think that's where we are. Okay, well, right let me now, ask you frankly. this then, though. I mean, to be fair, based on us trying to do that against Chelsea. Do you have any confidence in us being able to play that way? Or is this going to be a case of um, front-footed is the only way for us? <laughs> I, I think I think we could get better at it. Uh, the, the simple fact is when you start putting players behind the ball, magically you, you do tend to start defending better, regardless of the quality of the defenders that you actually have. Um, hence teams like Burnley. Uh, Burnley don't have great defenders. It's just they give them a lot of help. Um, it didn't really work for us this time because of the quality of Chelsea. And again, maybe mentally we're not quite there as a team to be able to do that. But um, like I say, I think in the long run for the next season or two, while we're trying to crack the top four again, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. As for what conclusions I take, I, t I took none from City um, because I... <sighs> It, that was exactly what I expected. At um, least it wasn't a six-one, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It was that game went exactly how I expected it to, and it, it felt like a free hit, to be honest. And I think City will do that to everyone else in the top six, with the maybe the um, exception of Liverpool, because Liverpool do seem to have their number a little bit. Um, this this game, I think we saw some good things in terms of the attack. We saw we saw a very Emery attack. You know, that's that's how he does it. He likes those kind of quite narrow, um, wide players who kind of come up and meet the midfield a bit, and we get the the fullbacks forward almost like um, the kind of the old style WM. It's, it starts to make a bit of an you start to make a bit of an M shape. You get the centre forward quite high up the 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 wide forwards just in field a little bit and behind them and then push the uh, push the fullbacks on and um, that that tends to be how Emery likes to play and, and it really looked like we took to that a fair bit which is part of the reason why I don't think it was a great decision to sit back because it looked like we really had the attacking part down but we don't have the defending part right yeah <laughs> well um, but as as for where we are I so I think I think we. I think this game was there to get something out of, and therefore I think it's quite disappointing. I, d I don't think Chelsea played some good stuff, but I think they looked vulnerable. But what what it probably does is it hits the reset button a little bit for us in terms of expectations. You know, I said to you on the Man City pod, I was I was kind of amazed at some of the reaction. I was just thinking, did you absolute lunatics wind yourselves up so much about this change of manager? You thought we were going to like dick all over Man City, like what, like you know, Apu voice? What were you thinking? <laughs> um, yeah, and and so that you know, but 
mate, if this just hits the reset button and just lets everyone know that actually there's a little bit of um, there's a little bit of work to do here under the bonnet. And also, if we'd if we'd like started with six, um, you know, six shit munchers and beat them all, and then played Chelsea and Man City and lost to them both, that would have been a big downer, right? Because everyone would have been like, it's yeah, a really look, good look point. At us, yeah, look yeah. at us beat Bournemouth look at us beat Watford look at us beat Brighton we're brilliant and then we go and play Chelsea Man City we get a reality check and everyone feels depressed again it kind of feels like we've got these games out of the way now for better or for worse I think we could have got something out of one of them even if only really a a draw that would have been fine with me but now we've got like a little bank of games there where we should build some points up but it but hopefully it will kind of inoculate people from getting a bit carried away. Like we've, it's almost like a baseline is being established. And I, again, I, I don't, for the fan base, I think that's a good thing. Whether it's a good thing for the team or not, I don't, you know, I don't really know because they probably could have used the confidence yeah. of going away to somewhere like Stamford Bridge. And like I say, I, I feel like Arsenal have been beaten down a bit and they feel like they're the poor relations of, of the top six and they need something to kind of pick themselves back up again. Yeah, and I, I just think that's the problem, right? You just you want that reward for the work you're putting in to show you that the work you're do, you're putting in is is getting you where you want to go. And they haven't had that validation yet, and they need it so that they don't lose faith in the project. And you would hope that the fans and players alike would not do that after two difficult games, um, because that um, would be ridiculous. Yeah, go ahead. And and just to really quickly on the point about Petr Cech, um, he he's he gets a lot of criticism. I, I think Paul's absolutely right. He's a fantastic example for those players to look to. He got absolute fucking pelters for that mistake against Man City, and not necessarily unreasonably. Um, that was really the only time he really made an error in terms of playing out from the back but obviously it was such a bad one that sticks in everyone's mind he did the goalkeeping bit fine but you know a week later he goes to his old ground Stamford Bridge big game focuses on him again doesn't phase him at all he's playing out from the back does it fine doesn't make any errors or anything like that and and I think Paul's right I think he's he's a big um, example that Emery can point to and say, look at what this guy did this week. He got, you know, he he made a mistake and he got his, he took his lumps for it, but he turned up the next week and put in a performance and didn't make any mistakes. So, you know, yeah. take some heart from that. He's 36 and he improved. You can too. Yeah, and great when you're 36 year old, you know, in the squad, someone who's very well respected across the league is putting in that effort, being a professional, being serious about what he's doing, it, it tells everybody at the club how they have to be behaving. So, Clive, I'll let you finish with this. What do you expect from the eight games coming up now with these two hard ones behind us? Are you taking more of the positives than the negatives from the first two results? And what do you need to see in these next eight for us to be on the right track? Yeah, I just need 24 points. Project 24 Done. That's what Easy. we need. I think... Um, I'm concerned by anything I've seen so far. In fact, I'm pleased because we're finding stuff out and this manager might react to it. And that's the important thing, it's our action. We're not just building a new team, we're not just building a new system, we're rebuilding our identity. And I think um, a lot of what we saw at the weekend and the previous week is a team. Well... I can tell you what we're not seeing is the strength of your internet, Clive. You, you're paying by the hour, I'm assuming. So I, I, I want to get this wisdom out of you. Let's give you one more go to finish that thought. Otherwise, we're going to have to uh, put a pin in that. Keep going. Fire away. Yeah, we're, we're, we're 
we're struggling. We're building our identity, aren't we? And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to believe in ourselves again. And there were times when I used to go to Stamford Bridge, but didn't matter what they did, we knew we were going to win. There was a belief running through the club, through the team. And when you have that, it's, it's an intangible. You know I love my intangibles. And I do know you love We haven't got that at the moment. <laughs> we haven't got that at the moment. And and it will come back when there's a big moment. And we, it could, that big moment could happen against a Cardiff away or a Newcastle away. It just needs something to strike a chord of belief for the team. And then you start to see the talent. Then the talent becomes more proactive and it's not reacting to situations because it doesn't quite believe in what it's doing. When you get Arsenal intelligent players being proactive and more front-footed in the, in the higher edge of the pitch, we're a good side, right? We're a good side. But we're still growing. And I'm, I'm really prepared to... You know, everyone's talking about patience. Everyone's trying to be intelligent talk about patience. We've got to be patient, we've got to be patient. 22 years, it's not going to take two games against toxic teams to understand what we have. It's going yeah. to take a long time. And um, and that's not being clever. That's just being obvious. And yep. the journey is the fun, right? Let's see what, what happens. And yeah. I'll leave it there because I can tell I must be struggling. <laughs> you're, you're struggling. You're struggling. I mean, it, it, it feels a little bit like the last the last half of the, of the Chelsea match. But what I will <laughs> say is that uh, we I think all of us on this podcast are in agreement that whatever judging can be done, and I, I know someone like Paul, for example, would say that no judging can be done this season, really, that it is a longer-term project than that. But whatever judging can be done is probably going to be much clearer and much more rationally done eight games from now than it is right now, right, right at this moment. I, I actually feel very good about where the project sits right now. I see signs that are very encouraging. Uh, I think the players and the coach maybe let themselves down a little at Stamford Bridge if Aubameyang finishes a chance, if Mkhitaryan finishes a chance, uh, you know, maybe we get a result. And maybe it's all three points. Uh, having said that, if the coach doesn't decide to get a little defensive at the end of that game, maybe we come away with something. But it is what it is. And now the reality is the hole we put ourselves in is such that, you know, to steal Clive's phrase, Project 24 is legit. We've got to go out and get a ton of points from these next ex- uh, next eight games. And we'll look forward to discussing them with you on future podcasts. In the meantime... Uh, Clive is on Twitter when his internet is available at Clive PAFC. Thank you, Clive. Thank you very much. Look, the Patreon money bought Tim a new mic. You subscribe now, you've got a chance to get a new ISP for Clive. <laughs> All of this stuff makes it a better podcast, my friends, and we love you for it. Tim's on Twitter at Stoberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Paul's on Twitter at Pause to My Pants. Thanks, Pause. Woohoo. My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Uh, leave us a five-star review. If you could do that, we would absolutely love you. We are going to have more giveaways. Uh, this first shirt giveaway is done. We'll have more of those. Uh, the live halftime show went off great. We uh, killed the audio gremlins, and we had a great halftime show at the weekend. We'll continue to do those as possible. So thanks for those uh, those of you who joined us for that. And, of course, on Patreon, the In the Spotlight Gwendouzi episode is up. The live shows are always posted there uh, in addition to these episodes ad-free. So if you don't want to hear about wonderful craft beer, why wouldn't you? But if you don't, uh, you can always join us on Patreon where you will not hear that. In any event, uh, we look forward to talking to you after Arsenal 10, West Ham. you know fantasy baseball then put your skills to the test on FanDuel. it's easy to get started and join the fun just sign up pick your contest and set your fantasy baseball lineup and right now you can get a 20 dollars bonus when you make your first deposit of at least five dollars 
Visit FanDuel.com or download the app and use promo code PODCAST to get full terms and conditions and start playing today. That's FanDuel.com, promo code PODCAST. Agent state limitations apply.